<clears throat> Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as, of, is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of the daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20, am I reading too long? <laughs> Sorry, guys. It was just five? Tara and Story Keepers and that those in 
nursery will have fun this morning. Help us to be respectful of each other, to listen well, and to learn and to experience your love. We pray in Jesus' name. integrating. I think there's still a, one of the uh, ESV scripture journals on the back table uh, for Nehemiah, if anyone wants to use that. Uh, if you don't have one, they provide good ways of taking notes um, as we look at the passage. Uh, as we prepare to look at it, let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, series in Nehemiah where we've been not only seeing uh, this leader at work, but also how you uh, used him and the people as a strategic part of your building, your, your church, your people, uh, so that the Messiah might come and glorify you and bring salvation for us. Uh, so help us now focus, help us to uh, hear your word addressed to our hearts, our needs, our challenges, that whether we're here and we aren't even sure whether we believe this morning or whether we've been walking, seeking to walk in faith and obedience for many years, that this will be a word for each one of us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the definite highlights for Tara and me on our sabbatical this summer was a walking tour we did in London on the capital's hottest day in recorded history, I will have you know, uh, organized by a group called the Christian Heritage London. Our wonderful tour guide uh, was Ben Virgo, and on the tour he took us to sites connected to Charles and John Wesley, William Tyndale, Thomas Watson, and, and others. But the highlight for me on the tour was to visit St. Mary Woolnoth Church in the city's financial district, that wasn't just because in the little cafe at the entrance to the church I discovered my now favorite dessert of affogato coffee, uh, but more importantly, this was the church where from 1780 to 1807, John Newton served as the minister. During those years, William Wilberforce was a regular attender also at the church, the abolitionist. And while we were there, the tour guide invited me to climb into Newton's pulpit to read 1 Chronicles 17, verses 16 to 17, which Newton wrote as part of the heading to his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Those verses in Chronicles read like this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. After I read those words, I came down and everyone on the tour joined together in the hymn Amazing Grace, which truly uh, was amazing. But let me remind you how the second verse of Amazing Grace begins. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." John Newton clearly understood that there are two types of fear in life. There's a good fear. Grace had taught his heart to adopt this good fear, but then there's the second kind of fear, probably what we associate most often with the word fear when we hear it, bad fears. Those are the fears, Newton says, that grace relieves. 
While Newton referenced verses from the first book of Chronicles when he penned this hymn, the language of the hymn's second verse fits beautifully with what we see today in chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Nehemiah. Just to bring everyone up to speed with where we are in this sermon series, so far we've seen how Nehemiah, uh, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Susa in the Persian Empire, gained permission from the king to return to his homeland, and in particular to Jerusalem, in order to help rebuild the city walls, 445 BC, and in turn, the rehabilitation of the city. Nehemiah understood the significance of this project in the grand scheme of God's big story, that a rebuilt Jerusalem would allow God's people to be in God's place at this time in history, and that the Israelite nation would have a home again so that out of that nation could come the promised Messiah to usher in God's rule and reign and to bring salvation and forgiveness of sin for everyone who would put their trust in this Messiah. Understanding the significance of the project, however, did not mean that there would not be challenges along the way, and there have been already plenty in what we've seen so far in the first four chapters, political challenges, administrative challenges, physical problems, psychological problems. And as we come to chapters 5 and 6, the problems change from not so much external now, but internal. That now the enemy is not outside, the enemy is within. Serious economic and social dispute arises amongst the Israelite people. It comes to the attention of Nehemiah. And if it's not dealt with, the structure at risk was not going to be the physical walls. It was going to be the community itself. We'll look at the issues at hand, how Nehemiah deals with them, and the subsequent challenges he must face. But through both of these chapters, we're going to see that this, this theme of fear is the thread that holds everything together. In fact, the fear of the Lord appears to achieve three things in these chapters, and this is how we're going to break the passage down to today, that the fear of the Lord fuels, first of all, the mission of justice. Secondly, it fuels the ministry of generosity. Thirdly, it fuels the relief of all other fears. So let's think first about how the fear of the Lord fuels the mission of justice. Uh, we'll think about the problem that arises for Nehemiah as chapter 5 begins. Look at verse 1 again. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now when Nehemiah says here a great outcry, he means what he says. This is the very same word that was used of the Israelites when they cry out to God while being oppressed as slaves by the Egyptians back in the book of Exodus. And the reason for the outcry here in Nehemiah 5 is laid out in the following verses. Three accusations come to Nehemiah from the people. And the first comes from a, the first group of people, which consists of those who didn't have enough food to feed their families. They probably owned no land of their own, but obviously they still needed to eat. However, having taken time to work on the wall, that had reduced their ability to earn wages. This group was probably most, most likely feeling that too much had been sacrificed for Nehemiah's project. After all, they might have said, you can't eat the walls. And then there was a second group. It consisted of people who owned property, 
but who were having to mortgage their land and their farms and their homes in order to buy food, but who were going to lose the security of their real estate if they couldn't pay their debts from the annual harvest, a harvest that was looking extremely unlikely due to the famine mentioned in verse 3. And then the third group mentioned in verses 4 and 5 consisted of those who had, again, had to borrow, again, with fields and vineyards as collateral, in order, in this case, to pay the Persian government taxes. Couldn't pay your taxes with grain. You couldn't pay it with your land. You had to pay your tax with gold and silver. While many of us may be understandably concerned about current rising interest rates here, it's nothing compared to what the interest rates were like in Nehemiah's day. Documents from Babylonia indicate that interest rates rose from 20% the days of King Cyrus to 50% by the end of the 5th century BC. The Persians may have been lenient with their subjects in religious matters, but in financial matters, they taxed the socks off them. As a result, people who did own property had to borrow the money against their land and leverage it that way to pay their taxes. When they were unable to pay back the money they'd borrowed, their creditors would demand that their children be sold into slavery. The travesty of what Nehemiah faced here in Jerusalem was that it was Jewish people who were lending money to their Jewish brothers and sisters, and when those brothers and sisters could not pay it back, the lender would say, well, give me your children as my slaves until you can repay the debt. Nehemiah has a crisis on his hands. His nerves are fraying, his tempers are flaring, all of which gets poured into these desperate outcries. Well, Nehemiah hears the accusations in the outcry, and in verse 6 on, he tells us his reaction. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah's response comes at three levels, right? He moves from the emotional, I was very angry, to the intellectual, I took counsel with myself, or I pondered, as some translations put it, to the volitional, I I brought charges. So he goes from righteous indignation to careful contemplation, to direct confrontation. And the issue was clear. The nobles were amassing wealth in a way that pushed their fellow Israelites into poverty and slavery. Their methods might have been legal, but they were not moral. They were looking only to line their own pockets. And Nehemiah is furious about it, but his anger is a measure of both his love and his concern for the people and their welfare and their witness. And it was that concern that made his anger controlled and constructive such that he knows that to rectify the situation was going to take more than just privately accusing the nobles and the officials of their alarming wrong. The whole community needed to be brought together so that they could all see each other face to face, so that the deprived families could voice their complaints directly to those who were harming them, and so that Nehemiah could remind them that they were all brothers and sisters and needed to act accordingly. And so the entire assembly is called together. 
And it's in Nehemiah's address to the assembled community that we come to the focus of our first point, that the fear of the Lord fuels the mission of justice. Look at how Nehemiah continues in verse 9. I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Now, there are two things to consider here. First of all, this is the first mention in these chapters of this fear, the fear of God. And so it's worth just pausing and saying, well, what exactly does that mean? The fear of God or the fear of the Lord. As I intimated at the start, you know, the fear of God can trip some people up because we tend to think that fear always is a negative thing, a bad thing. But John Newton remind us there's a good fear as well as a bad fear. Grace teaches our heart the good fear. It's not a servile fear. It's not a, a cowering fear of reprisal and punishment. It's a fear that we've defined around here, and I still like this as my favorite definition of it, as a trembling trust. The fear of the Lord is a trembling trust. That is, there's this foundation of confidence in this God, of absolute trust in who he is and what he's done and what he will do. But as we trust, we tremble because this is the sovereign, holy, righteous, just God of the universe who will judge all people. Another way to define the fear of the Lord is with two three-letter words, woe and wow. This is what the prophet Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6 when he, he's ushered into the very heavenly throne room of God and God's presence, and he smells the smoke, and literally the room is shaking such that he's overcome, and he cries out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then there's the wow, same verse, for my eyes have seen the king in all his glory. Fear of the Lord brings both the woe and the wow together. Or here's one other way to understand correctly this fear of the Lord, this trembling trust. In Graham Greene's children's story, The Wind in the Willows, Rat and Mole go looking for a baby otter, and they stumble into the presence of God and Green write, Graham writes this, suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. And then the two animals crouching to the earth bowed their heads and did worship. So we get a sense of what this fear of the Lord is. But the second thing we need to notice in verse 9 is this, that look at what Nehemiah says is the purpose or the goal of walking in the fear of, of God for Nehemiah's people. That is of literally, specifically, righting the wrongs and freeing the slaves and forgiving the debt of their brothers and sisters, of undoing all of the injustices that were going on. He says it's to prevent the taunts of the nations, their enemies. Now, very few of the commentators actually pick up on this. A few do, but I actually think it's massively important for us to note that the call to rectify all the injustice that was happening was, of course, a call to demonstrate compassion and love to their neighbors, to lift the unbearable burden that had been cruelly 
placed upon many in the community. But Nehemiah says there's an even bigger purpose here. He quickly recognized that this internal conflict undermined the Jews' witness to a watching world. That Israel had been entrusted by God with this unique testimony to the nations around them. They were not only to declare what God is like, they were to manifest those qualities in their own lives. Their testimony was to be both verbal and visual. They were meant to be a distinctive community of God's people, displaying his justice, his compassion, his care for the weak in the way that they treated one another. And when those who claim to fear God then mistreat each other, Outsiders get the wrong message that those who are part of God's covenant community, part of God's church, part of his people, are really no different than anybody else. If Israel's pagan neighbors saw them behaving nastily toward each other, how were they supposed to be persuaded of the uniqueness and the reality and the beauty of Israel's God? Who would believe that Israel's God was kind and merciful and and compassionate when his followers, his worshipers, were cruel and merciless and mean towards the people he loves. The people of Israel had forgotten their mission as God's people. They were supposed to be a showpiece, a specimen of love to the world. The nations were supposed to be able to look at Israel and see a people who were harmonious and prosperous and content and organized such that the people of the nations would say, oh, how I wish I was part of that people. Given the behavior of the Israelites here, that would have been the furthest thought from the minds of the watching nations. I hope it's obvious to all of us that this principle still applies to us today, that the fear of the Lord is to be fuel of a mission of justice for us too. And that means at the very least that the making of money by any means should never take precedence over the love of our neighbor. I think there's a direct application here for any of us who employ others in our own business or who have the means to hire people to attend our gardens, to clean our houses, or whatever else it might be, that we should be constantly aware of how our, treat, of how our treatment of those that we employ might translate in their minds to what they think of the Christian faith we profess. Let me say that again. We need to be constantly aware of how our treatment of those we employ might translate in their minds to what they think of the Christian faith that we profess. But at another level here in the church, the application's not that different. When newcomers, and thank you those of you who are newcomers today, when newcomers grace us with their presence on a Sunday, or people in the community observe us talking to one another or perhaps talking about one another during the week, Are they more likely as a result to want to get involved here with us based on what they hear? Or would they think, if that's how they treat each other, I think I'll steer clear of that church. Thank you very much. I suspect that there are a significant number of people in the world who would agree with Mahatma Gandhi when he said, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. God forbid that this would ever be said about us or our witness. Here's how Harvey Kahn applies the lesson we see here in Nehemiah 5 to the church's mission today. I love this quote. He says, we are God's demonstration community, his model home, 
of the rule of Christ in the city or town we live in, on a tract of earth's land purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. As a sample of what will be, he has erected a model home of what will eventually fill the neighborhood. And he now invites the world into that model home to take a look at what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors into its open door to Christ. Evangelism is when the signs are up saying, come in and look around. In this model home, we live out our new lifestyle as citizens of the heavenly city that one day will come. Fear of the Lord fuels the mission of justice. Secondly, the fear of the Lord fuels the ministry of generosity. Nehemiah immediately provides a practical application to this mission of justice. He calls on all the lenders to immediately return property and payment to their poorer but rightful owners. Give it all back, he says. And Nehemiah actually includes himself in this call in verse 10 because he too had been extending capital loans, probably not charging interest, but he realizes even that wasn't satisfactory. He should have been providing gifts, not extending loans. It might actually be that Nehemiah here was applying the Old Testament year of jubilee theology, where every 50 years all debts were canceled and all property returned to its rightful heir. There's no indication that Israel ever properly put that into practice. But Nehemiah's instructions here, albeit not obviously on a 50th year, reflect definitely the spirit of that year of, the year of jubilee theology. And what follows then here in verses 14 to 19 sort of interrupts the chronological flow of the narrative with something of an extract out of Nehemiah's diary to provide an example of what it looked like to walk in the fear of the Lord in contrast to the heartless profiteering of some of his fellow Jews. Look at verses 14 to 15. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Now we get here confirmation of something that I mentioned in the first sermon in this series, that when Nehemiah got permission from King Artaxerxes to leave his job as cupbearer to the Persian king, he also was appointed by the king to be the governor in his homeland of Judah to which he was returning. And as governor here, we see Nehemiah was assigned a food allowance, a very substantial allowance, which would have been funded by a tax on the local population. But Nehemiah tells us here that unlike his predecessors, he refused to pass on the cost to his subjects, and he shouldered it himself. Why? He says, because of the fear of God. But for Nehemiah, the fear of the Lord didn't just fuel tax relief for others. It fuels this extravagant ministry of generosity. Here he was, governor of a people shoulder deep in hard economic times, facing a famine, essentially dealing with their own Great Depression. So what does Nehemiah do? He spreads a feast. Every day, he shares a Thanksgiving meal. And as Nehemiah tells the story, we discover that at his table eating dinner with him were all kinds of people, not just nobles, but nobles and commoners. He even invites 
people, where he tells us, from neighboring nations to come to his table to enjoy the finest of Israel's fare. And this was a banquet not just for a few, but for many. Each day, the governor's kitchen staff, he tells us, prepared the food by taking an ox and six sheep, some hens and chickens, and they present these fabulous dishes to the hundreds of people who came to eat. Every 10 days, he tells us, abundant amounts of the finest of wines would be delivered in barrels to the palace of Jerusalem. Now, here's the ancient forerunner of Babette's feast, if ever there was one. If you've never seen that, that's your homework this week. Rent it. You won't be disappointed. Nehemiah, of course, didn't have to do this. I mean, he, he, govern, he's a governor. Governors are entitled. He had every right as a governor to eat alone or to invite just a few of the the high-powered people of the city, but he doesn't do that for 12 years, including in the midst of these difficult days for the people with their long hours of working and simply not able to make their ends meet. Nehemiah's table was open every day. Barry Corey, who's the president of Biola University in his book, Love Kindness, makes the delightful suggestion that maybe when Nehemiah died, and entered the presence of God, that God gave him the nod by recalling not the wall building, but the meal servings. Corey says, I have to believe that what God remembers is not necessarily what we think he might. That the trowels had been set down in Jerusalem, the mortar was drying each of those evenings, the bills were piling up for the regular wall building people just like us, Nehemiah wrote in verse 18, the burden was too heavy on the people, but there was a kind leader with a heart for God who gave hope through a meal to those people who felt hopeless. Ministry of generosity fueled by what? Fueled by the fear of the Lord. Which brings us lastly to the relief of all other fears. We're obviously not going to be able to look in detail at chapter 6, But I'll I'll tell you that at the start of the chapter, if I tell you that at the start of the chapter, the unholy trinity of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem reappear, then those of you who have been here for earlier weeks will probably have an idea where this chapter is going. It's nowhere good. Because these three are up to their old tricks of seeking to scare Nehemiah. And in this chapter, they're behind four distinct plots against Nehemiah. Verses 1 to 4, a plot to kidnap him. Verses 5 to 9, a plot to slander him. Verses 10 to 14, a plot to intimidate him. Verses uh, 15 to 19, a plot to undermine him. And all of the plots have the goal of making Nehemiah afraid, making him fearful. We see that in four different verses in this chapter. Verse 9, they all wanted to frighten us. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. Verse 14, also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Verse 19, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So there are all these fear tactics that the enemy uses against Nehemiah. But in each case, Nehemiah doesn't back down. He doesn't back down because he has the good fear. He's got the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord trumps all the other fears. And we see how this plays out in in various places in this chapter, but I want us just to think about one briefly. 
and the plot to intimidate Nehemiah that comes in verses 10 to 14. This plot involved the hiring of a prophet called Shemaiah, who then lies to Nehemiah that his life, the governor's life, is, is in jeopardy that night, and that for safety he should hide out in the holy place in the temple. Verse 11, Nehemiah gives us his response. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah showed both humility here and courage. Humility in that he knew that since he was not a priest, he had no right of access to the holy place of the temple. Had he tried to save himself in that way, Nehemiah would have possibly lost his life, but certainly would have lost his honor. He would have jeopardized the very cause that was at the very heart of who he is. But he shows not only humility, Nehemiah also shows courage here. One of my newfound heroes of the faith is a man called Lemuel Haynes. Haynes has been uh, referred to as one of the most significant figures in American and church history that most people have never heard of. He was born in 1753. He served in the Continental Army in the War of Independence. I'll not hold that against him. But what particularly drew my attention to him is that for 30 years, he served as a black pastor to an all-white congregation in Rutland, Vermont, just south of Middlebury, where Tara and I went to college. And indeed, the connections go deeper than that. Haynes also helped found the church that Tara grew up in, and he received an honorary master's degree from Middlebury College. But what I love most about Lemuel Haynes is just his commitment to God. He, He was a Puritan in the best sense of the word. One biographer said he was committed to sound theology in the pulpit, to theologically informed practice in the church, and to theologically reformed living in the world. But the reason I tell you that is not just because I want to increase membership in the Lemuel Haynes fan club, but also because Haynes' first published sermon was preached at the ordination of a Reverend Reuben Parmalee at the First Congregational Church of Heinsburg, Vermont, February 1791. And in that sermon, Haynes drew on Nehemiah 6 as he described the character of of a gospel minister, but I'd also suggest of all gospel people of anyone who would call themselves a Christian. And here's what Haynes said about Nehemiah's response to this plot of intimidation. Quote, courage and fortitude must constitute part of the character of a gospel minister. A sentinel who is worthy of that station will not fear the formidable appearances of the enemies nor tremble at their menaces. None of these things will move him Neither will he count his life dear unto him as he defends a cause so very important. He has the spirit of intrepid Nehemiah. Should such a man as I flee, he stands fast in the faith, conducts himself bravely, and is strong. And it's that combination of humility and courage in Nehemiah that flows out of his fear of the Lord that enables him to know relief from all other fears in his life. 17th century poet John Donne, at the end of his life, on his deathbed, wrote these words, Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. He was saying, all of us, all of us will have fear, but you have a choice. 
You can have a good fear or you can have bad fears. You can fear God or you can fear everyone and everything else in this world. And Nehemiah chose the fear of the Lord and it fueled this mission of, of justice and this ministry of generosity and this relief of all other fears. He knew what it was to have this trembling trust before the Lord and it transformed how he lived. He knew what it was to walk with, with both wow and woe as experienced by the prophet Isaiah. But let me close with this in anticipation of us sharing in the Lord's Supper in a few moments. That you and I are able to see far more clearly than Isaiah or Nehemiah these constituent parts of the fear of the Lord, the, the woe and the wow. Because it's at the cross of Jesus that we most clearly see the woe of our sin, of what it costs God to bring us back to himself, to reconcile us to him, to rescue us from the consequences of all the injustices that we've committed in our lives. But the cross of Jesus also shows us most clearly the wow of the fear of the Lord. The wow that God would actually be so committed to his glory for himself and his love for us that he would send his only son, Jesus the Messiah, to the cross in our place so that one day he will lay out for all who trust in him in extravagant generosity a daily banquet beyond our wildest imagination to which we will be invited to sit every day for eternity and to the extent that you're able to take that in the woe and the wow the trembling trust fear of the Lord, to that extent it will fuel for you this mission of justice and this ministry of generosity and the relief of all fears. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you not only for the example of Nehemiah, but for you being worthy of this trembling trust where we come before you in woe and with wow, where we fear you rightly for who you are, but how that transforms our lives. This trembling trust transforms how we live. May that be so in each of our lives so that we treat each other with justice and kindness and love each other well so that a watching world may say, I want to be part of that too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.